Just a quick note here as we start our eighth and final episode in our corrective feedback series. Leo, Mike, and I would like to thank Carleton University and specifically Dr. Eva Karchava for their support in bringing this project to life. We'd also like to thank all the scholars and interviewers for their dedication to the series. And a big thank you to you for listening. If this is your first time stopping by, definitely go back and check out the other seven episodes in this series. You won't regret it. Now, let's dive into the episode. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. I think the teachers have to be aware that, you know, they have a, a number of options they can choose from, and they should try to adjust the options to a specific class and the objectives they want to meet, okay? And and again, I would encourage teachers to look at feedback as a very important tool that somehow fits in with the entire process of instruction, okay? So not something separate. Definitely feedback should not be random, okay? So you should not just correct everything or you should not just pick up on something that is relevant. The decisions about corrective feedback are made in a split second. You don't really have the time as a teacher to ruminate on what to do. I mean, sometimes you do, but but you cannot really ponder on every single error that is made, okay? It's just simply not possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, the main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew. We also have a membership, don't we? We absolutely do. Our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say teach more mindfully, right? That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning, developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do? Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. We are thrilled to announce our partnership with Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada for this podcast series on corrective feedback. A big thank you to Dr. Eva Karchava and her MA class 
to produce this interview series, which we know will be a fantastic analysis of corrective feedback and its role in language learning and teaching. This series has eight episodes focusing on aspects of corrective feedback. Corrective feedback is a crucial area of second language acquisition, and there has been a lot of research done recently to shed light on the role it plays in student learning. Seven of the interviews in this series were conducted by students in Dr. Karchava's MA class as means of assessment to do two primary things. Number one, to connect researchers to their audience, and number two, to have her students have a greater level of understanding and investment in the research they were reading. That's right, Leo, and we're excited to provide an outlet for this project and to give not only new voices an opportunity to be heard, but to allow for new podcasting experiences for many. If you or your institution is interested in producing a mini-series, either as a means of assessment or otherwise, please reach out to us at info at learnyourenglish.com. Dr. Miroslav Pavlik is the head of the Department of English Studies and part of the Faculty of Pedagogy and Fine Arts in Kalish, Poland at Adam Meskowitz University. He also works as professor of English in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the State University of Applied Sciences in Konin, Poland. Additionally, he is the editor-in-chief of the journals Studies in Second Language Learning and Teaching, and Conan Language Studies, and the editor-in-chief of the book series, Second Language Learning and Teaching. His areas of research include form-focused instruction, corrective feedback, pronunciation teaching, classroom interaction, study abroad, and a range of individual difference factors such as motivation, willingness to communicate, language learning strategies, and boredom. His most recent research article, Corrective Feedback, Developmental Readiness, and Language Proficiency, can be seen in the Cambridge Handbook of Corrective Feedback in Second Language Learning and Teaching. This interview was conducted by Meghna Akavur and Jewel Lip. With that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. <laughs> I'm Jewel, and this is... I'm Mirek. It's good to meet you. Yeah, I'm Meghna. <laughs> good to meet you too, Meghna. Yeah. Okay. So, can you um, tell us some more about yourself and your work? Well, one fact that maybe not too many people are aware of, especially outside of Poland is that I was a high school teacher for, for a very, very long time, meaning right after I graduated from what we call English philology in Poland, Poznań, I started teaching in high school and I taught there for like, I think, 13, 14 years. And it was when I was teaching in high school that I did my PhD. And my PhD was in classroom interaction primarily, so it was not really on corrective feedback as such, but on different aspects of classroom interaction, such as, you know, questions, negotiation of meaning and group work, pair work also error correction and stuff. And then I moved on kind of because in Poland, then you get like, a, I started working at the university after I got my PhD. Uh, currently, I'm working in two places. Adam Miskevich University is like the main one. And, and also I work in another smaller vocation university, which is State University of Applied Sciences in Konin, Poland. And uh, once I, you know, started working at the university, I started, you know, I, I began much more uh, I began to 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 investigate kind of uh, grammar teaching or form focused instruction, and then uh, that somehow naturally I shifted to error correction or corrective feedback. And right now, basically, right now I don't really I'm not really doing that much research in corrective feedback. So I wish I could you know go back to it at some point. But my main interest would be on individual differences and different aspects of individual differences, like you know, motivation strategies, but also boredom. 
I'm not sure if you read anything about boredom, but yeah. boredom is really a hot topic in ID research right now. But and I've also been trying over the years to actually connect the areas, as you know, looking at strong focus instruction, corrective feedback, and individual differences as mediating variables because we have uh, a lot of research on corrective feedback and a lot of research on uh, grammar teaching, but we don't really have too much research that would investigate uh, the ID variables which kind of mediate the effects of corrective feedback or grammar teaching. And when we do have such research, it focuses on things that teachers might not be most interested in, like working memory, so something not really, uh, directly applicable in the classroom. So basically, that's what I've been doing. Um, Right now, I'm working on a couple of projects, uh, and uh, and also teaching at the university primarily. Okay, so like MA courses and uh, MA seminars, and just uh, English teaching methodology. So that's basically what I do. Right. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that, that, has, that has been a long way. You know, this has been a long way, and I never. I think when I was graduating from the university, I never saw myself as like a professor of city. So this this never was actually crossing my mind. So it has been an amazing journey, but you know, but I still love teaching a lot, whatever I teach. And I just wish I could teach more, which is not possible to offer right now because there's so many things, you know. Yeah. So like uh, even though uh, feedback is a part of learning, uh, in sometimes uh, the lack of awareness among the teachers uh, might uh, interfere in students from learning uh, uh, learning or you know correcting these uh, errors. So uh, how do you get teachers more interested in learning about corrective feedback? Well, I think that what you're touching upon here is a critical issue, and mm -hmm. um, not only with respect to corrective feedback, but with respect to anything we do in, uh, in SLA or second language acquisition research in general. I think you have this divide between research outcomes and what happens in the classroom. And I, I don't really think. I mean, it it might depends on the con it might depend on the context, but I don't think the teachers are very quick to actually pick up on um, uh, research findings. There are many reasons for this. I mean, when you, I mean, how many teachers actually? I mean, there are a couple of papers actually. I just finished a paper a couple of weeks back on grammar teaching, which I entitled like "New Solutions, Old Problems." And I think that you have a lot of ideas, but how many teachers actually? Do get down to to read like papers in journals. Okay, they don't, you know, because you know they have to pay for the content, and also, uh, you know, papers are intended for scholars, not for teachers. You know, teachers would find it very difficult to understand them, also because of the statistical procedures and so on. And even when you have pedagogical implications, I think very often they are not really related to classroom realities. Okay, to give you one example. Uh, you know, there was this focus on form thing, which, which, which I, I'm a very strong believer in focus on form, but I also believe that in a country like Poland, where you have still mostly kind of traditional teaching, I think it's much more important. I think Photos wrote this like in 2002. It's important to shift the focus from forms to form just by introducing communicative interaction and communicative feedback. And you cannot just say, well, you always have to correct errors in the course of communicative interactions, because in many classrooms, those communicative interactions just don't happen. You know what I'm saying? So, so when teachers see recommendations like this, it's problematic. And also, I think another reason is that you don't really have like uh, some kind of, you know, summaries of syntheses or research findings that would be approached that the teachers could approach and actually understand. So these are main challenges, and I think that this is the main thing for us to actually try to communicate 
the research findings in an you know comprehensible manner to teachers. And this is the main challenge. And when I say this, I don't mean a section in a paper for language learning which is entitled pedagogical implications. Okay, but something much easier to understand, something that people can follow. And frankly, you know, even though I I'm working on a lot of projects, I try to write stuff and publish, for example, for like our national uh, journals for teachers, okay? Uh, something, you know, using maybe easier language, something they can easily understand. And also, I, I very often feel, at least in Poland, that when you look at language teaching methodology, it surpasses, I mean, in the case of English, it's much more advanced than in the case of other foreign languages. And I feel very often it's my duty, basically, to, um, to communicate the results of such research to teachers of other languages, okay? So, I think this is the main thing, uh, and it has been my dream. I mean, I've been like busy, I mean, totally busy. I mean, there is always something, but my dream is to actually be able to write down like first book teachers, uh, which would be applicable to foreign language context, because, you know, out there we have a lot of course books for teachers, but these are intended very often like for English as a second language teachers, it's a very different context, okay? And, and I think that when teachers read some recommendations, which basically ignore the realities that they have to face every day, uh, it's very unlikely that they will try to, you know, apply them in their own teaching. So I'm not, I'm not really sure if this answers your question, but but this is the, the feeling I've been getting, okay, all along. Perfect. I, yeah, I very much feel that. Uh, that's why I liked your work when I was reading it, um, because you, it, you could tell that you had taught, and I think that is absent in some people's work. I mean, you cannot, you know, of course you have to fit in, okay? And when you write for a top journal, you just have to remember this is supposed to be scholarly work. But but I think also the chapter, I mean, I'm not sure if I should be letting you in on this little secret, but I think that the first time I wrote the chapter on development of readiness and proficiency for the Handbook of Corrective Feedback, like the reviews were very critical, not so much because of the, um, you know, content, but the focus, because the focus is very different. If you read this, I was not really trying to focus so much on like putting the studies together and just to say what they show, but I was trying to show how this is relevant to teachers. And I think this was my main concern here. Uh, and, and I believe we need to try to show it, okay? Even though it's difficult, but at the end of the day, you know, this is our, I mean, I believe this is my job as well, okay? We have too many theories, like, you know, there are so many ideas, you know, floating around, like in grammar teaching, for example, I can, I can mention like accounts of grammar based on cognitive grammar or maybe input processing instruction. And this sounds great, right? But, you know, when teachers have to face like a classroom full of students, I don't think that you can expect teachers to teach like this all the time because they have their own limitations. Okay, so that's basically what I'm trying to say. So this divide, we need to bridge this divide. And I know that there has been a lot of talk about it. when I go to conferences or hear so much, so many talk or so much talk about how we should bridge the gap, but we have not really been doing much. To bridge the gap. Okay, so so we you should not really be surprised that teachers are not very quick to implement in their own teaching what what we are working on. But the solutions are not easy and, and not are not simple, basically, right? But we have to try. That's an excellent answer. Yeah. yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure if, if that you know if that if, if you're happy with this answer, but, but I think that's yeah, the answer I can give you. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to say that I will be trying to, and I've been trying to, and I will be trying definitely. To to communicate as much as possible to teachers. And, and at, at one point, you know, my colleagues and myself, we are planning to write like a course book or, you know, a guide that would be really accessible 
for teachers or publish, you know, also for pre-service teachers. I mean, students who are studying to be teachers, because the thing is, they don't really have very good materials here in Poland. Okay? Some of them are too theoretical, very much divorced from what happens in the classrooms. Others are not really related to the context. So, so I feel very strongly that especially for foreign language context, you need some kind of course book that would tackle like the most important issues and, and actually try to, you know, show the way to some extent, right? Although as you, I, I'm not sure to what extent you have been teaching, but, you know, as a teacher myself, I think that language teaching methodology can only show you some potential solutions, but it will not tell you what to do in every single situation. Okay. So do you think, um, when we talk about teachers and like we talk a lot about how the feedback they give, do you think how we give corrective feedback affects the willingness of learners to communicate and learn? I mean, there, there are like two sides of this coin, because on the one hand, we, like on a very general level, I mean, there is a lot of talk about, you know, refraining from giving corrective feedback in particular during communicative activities because students will get discouraged and so on if you interrupt them. Uh, on the other hand, we have like research findings showing that it is like that feedback which is given during communicative activities might be the most effective if it is provided in the right way. So I think it's, it's a major it's a major issue to to discuss. So so of course, uh, I think we have to be very careful. And but but I believe very strongly that we can provide corrective feedback uh, during communication based tasks in such a way that does not really hinder willingness to communicate. Okay, uh, by for example, I know focusing on a specific letter okay, instead of correcting everything. I mean, I think very often the problem is that teachers try to focus on too many things at the same time, and this simply confuses the learner who, who is just trying, struggling to say something. So, of course, I think this is, so this is one, one level, okay, uh, at, on which, at which we have to look at the relationship between corrective feedback and willingness to communicate a very important level. But then again, individual differences come into play here, right? So, I mean, when we know our learners, I mean, whether we measure those differences or not, I mean, still, we have some kind of idea of how they react to to corrective feedback, uh, or it depends on the structure we try to correct. You know, when you have a beginner who is really struggling to say something and he or she says something like, I know her for a long time, of course, this would be like negative transfer from Polish, not using the present perfect, but just using the present simple tense. I mean, it doesn't really make sense, right, to correct, because obviously the learner has no idea. So this is like the most general level, but um, I think that corrective feedback, that there is also a more, I would say, focused level or a more like a more specific level, because we have like this this basic distinction between output providing and input uh, uh, input providing and output prompting feedback. So of course, when when you just keep using recasts, which are so reform reform well, a recast like for the sake of the listeners, like a reform corrective reformulation of something that is incorrect, which preserves the intended meaning. But when you keep using recasts, which students might not even notice or they may not even realize that this is a correction, this might not really encourage willingness to communicate if you sometimes get them to think about what they said, to reflect on what they said by using a prompt. This might be a little bit more conducive to stimulating willingness to communicate. But again, I would like to stress it depends on the situation, so it's not like uh, like, like some kind of you know, foolproof recommendation that would work in any any single context, okay? So I would be talking about the two levels since I've also been doing work on willingness to communicate that like more generally, okay, not discouraging students to speak, but encouraging students to speak. But again, there are so many different pieces of the puzzle, and I think corrective feedback is one of them. Okay, so we have 
to realize this. And, uh, and then we have uh, this more specific level. So what kind of correction you use and in what context? And, and of course, then, uh, you know, because in some context, if I can just make a digression here, there, in some context, when, when you're working on grammar uh, and you want to make sure that students like, understand and use the structure correctly and meaningfully and, 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 uh, and also appropriately, I think it's, you need to correct right away and it has no effect whatsoever on willingness to communicate because the student is just processing like a grammar point. But when you have like a real time communication, I think it's critical. The willingness to communicate is a separate topic, of course, which I could talk about for a very long time, but, but this is interesting. And just one thing I would like to say, please note, I think there are just like two studies or two studies that I'm aware of which actually try, or three studies that try to link willingness to communicate with corrective feedback. And this is such a fascinating research area. And you don't really have too many, too much research uh, on this, right? And the same applies to other individual difference variables. But since we are talking about willingness to communicate, I really wish uh, there were more research. Actually, I have a study that I you know, conducted a couple of years back, and I never had the time to write it up. So I'm hoping to, to find the time to do that. I have a question to ask you, um, Doctor. Do you find that corrective feedback leads to better, perhaps, intake and then follow up, following that up, a better output, specifically when the teacher is able to identify that point of need that the student is really trying to communicate something and that message is very salient? For that specific learner and then the teacher intervenes and provides any sort of feedback do you find that when when feedback is really at that point of need do you think that that actually has a much better intake and therefore better output uh, definitely i would agree with that okay so when, it's like the kind of moment which you remember okay because you have this communicative need but but, but still, I think we need to make a distinction here between, uh, because I'm not sure if this is going to be addressed later in the podcast, between explicit knowledge or conscious knowledge and like highly automatized knowledge. Because if we, mm, you know, if we uh, do not know a structure or if we cannot use it in communication, then of course, sometimes it's not really a matter of making the student aware because the student might make the mistake because well, he, he does know the rule. I mean, I can mention the third person S, okay? Or the past tense the ending, but it's a matter of like uh, real time condition conditions, real time interaction, and then you just make the mistake. Okay, but of course, uh, if we are talking about a specific structure, or maybe about a specific vocabulary item, or maybe about pronunciation where you get corrected and you basically remember it. I have this. Well, I, I love digressions. Like during my lecture, so I'll just make one here. When I was in the United States, because uh, a long time ago, it was oh my god, a very long time ago when I when I was in high school, I took part in the English Olympiad. I did pretty well, so the reward was to go to the U.S. for like uh, six weeks, and I was I attended a course in journalism in St. Louis, and I was staying with an Indian family. Indian meaning from India, like like in Asia, and and I remember saying something like I know uh, making a, a pronunciation mistake, uh, which I don't really remember right now, but still uh, I got corrected, and I never made that same mistake again. Okay, so definitely those memorable moments uh, are of great importance, okay, and some things you, you never forget. I think I said opponent instead of opponent or whatever, but, but you just get to remember it, okay, and, and and you would never make the mistake again. So in this sense, I think corrective feedback sometimes, you know, it's it's a teachable moment. This is what Brian Larson Freeman says. I think this is what uh, Shadron said a while ago. So 
So I think that for many learners, this is really what we call a teachable moment, something you remember because you know you're trying to get your message across. You 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 fail or 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 you you're not understood, and then you you, you just try to, to 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 remember this for the future. Yeah, so I think you're right here about the need. Yeah, definitely. So I was wondering for teachers, if you were to give them some advice about giving feedback, would you say it's better to give a variety of types of different feedback than just to focus on like just recast or just prompts and kind of thing? Well, I, I just think variety is always the best option, but but on the whole, like like. I would say that you have to make a very important distinction. Oh, of course, we can talk about writing and speaking. I'll just focus on speaking right now. But but in speaking, I think that the critical um, criterion, so to speak, is whether you're focusing on accuracy. So you're trying to somehow uh, expand the student's explicit knowledge or understanding of something, or are you working on uh, fluency? So are you so so students are struggling to say something? They're they're communicating something, and I think that. You know, the choices you make have to be very different. For example, again, if a student makes a mistake while trying to apply a new structure, I think the feedback should simply be direct or immediate because uh, you cannot really expect the student to, I mean, you can expect him or her to self-correct maybe, but but it doesn't really make sense to, 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 to like use a, use a, use like a very implicit type of feedback. Of course, in, in communication, you would try to do everything in your power to prevent uh, the communicative activity from be, from becoming just like just another traditional exercise okay so in this case i think you would you would try to provide feedback in a way which does not interfere with uh, uh like the communicative exchange okay so whether you use a prompt or a recast i mean again it depends on so many factors you know a recast might be uh maybe you know I mean, the, the difficulty of the structure or the extent to which the students studied the structure before. I mean, the choice of the corrective feedback will probably be, will probably be should be dependent on, on, on a wide array of such factors, I think. Okay, so I, I, no, I don't think that there is one specific way to correct errors, okay? And this is something that, again, if you look at research, I mean, you have studies, but whatever the studies show you or whatever the studies tell you, they typically show that corrective feedback is effective. There are different combinations, but we have to remember that there are those contextual considerations or individual considerations, or there, there, there are issues related to the structure, which we have to take into account. Okay, and then I, I wouldn't say that you know there's like ever there's just one type of feedback that work, always work best. Okay, the combination depending on on a number of factors. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. 
Hi everyone, my name is Marek Kiczkowiak and I'm from Poland. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Cześć, nazywam się Marek Kiczkowiak i jestem z Polski. Słuchacie właśnie Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Uh, so, like, um, there are individual differences that can both affect the learner's uptake and uh, teacher's way of uh, giving feedback. So, uh, what can we learn from studying developmental readiness uh, and its impact on the effectiveness of uh, corrective feedback? Well, I'm, if, if you read the chapter that I wrote, you can you can probably see that I'm not a big fan of developmental sequences for a number of reasons. I think, you know, first of all, you know, there is relatively little research on developmental readiness. Okay? If, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're restricted to just uh, some structures okay, or some grammatical features uh, and in, a, in, a, in, in several languages, basically. Okay, so uh, I'm not, you know, I might have read a couple of studies, but I don't think that there is too much research about developmental sequences in Polish, for example. Okay, there might be, uh, but, but not, has never been researched as much as English or Turkish or German or maybe Spanish for that matter. So, so I think that this is one problem, okay, which should make you suspicious immediately of the pedagogical value of developmental readiness and 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 what you can do with it. Okay, uh, of course you study it in 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 the experimental studies, and then you can you know try to adjust the feedback to develop developmental readiness, or you can use developmental readiness as a measure of acquisition. But I'm not really sure where this can take you and what kind of pedagogical implications this might have. Uh, we also have to remember that when we talk about developmental readiness, this all only applies to implicit knowledge. So the kind of subconscious knowledge, internal syllabus that the learner has in his or her head. And then if you read the work like by Rob, of Robert de Kaiser in particular, again, he would make the point with which I agree that when you teach uh, a language in a country like Poland, it's very difficult to talk about implicit knowledge because even when learners reach a very high level of proficiency, but you know, uh, they still remember the rules, okay? So the knowledge never becomes unconscious or subconscious, as Stephen Prussian would have it. So I think that, so I'm not really sure to what extent developmental sequences would play a huge role here, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's just, so I think that there is very limited potential for class. And so, so I've been talking about uh, different problems with developmental readiness, but then if you think about the classroom, how do you really expect teachers to get to know this stuff? Okay. Second of all, how do you expect them to identify the developmental readiness for many features? Even if we did have all the information about developmental readiness for you know different structures in English, even in English, how how do you go about identifying like the stages of acquisition for different learners in a group of sixteen learners? Okay, for different structures, and even if you could, okay, theoretically, which is of course crazy and is not possible, what could you possibly do in the classroom? And you you would have to be a computer to be able to. Uh, you know, process this information in real time because we always have to remember, you know, and 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 this is what I wrote in my book, like 2014. I I think that when the decisions about corrective feedback are made in a split second, you don't really have the time as a teacher to ruminate on what to do. I mean, sometimes you do, but but you cannot really ponder on every single error that is made. Okay, it's just simply not possible. You have your objectives to to meet. Okay, so to me, developmental readiness, just like working memory. Be saying this because I'm right now doing some research on working memory, but I think from a pedagogical perspective, the value is very, very limited, right? And for the simple reason that I don't really see a way in which teachers could really capitalize on this kind of knowledge. Of course, occasionally, I mean, they might try, 
but definitely not in everyday teaching practice. I mean, this is what I think about developmental readiness. Of course, we can study it from a theoretical perspective. It's a, it's a very nice area of study, even though it might, might be just my impression, but I, I, I think that there, we have seen like fewer studies based on developmental readiness in recent years, okay, which is another issue. But I think that there is a very limited pedagogical value in developmental readiness for teachers. So that's why I would say that if we want to say anything about correction and learner's level, it's better to look at proficiency because it's simply more tangible, okay? however we define this proficiency. And also a very dangerous trend, and, and also in the chapter for uh, Eva and Hossein's book, uh, handbook, I think I provide a few examples with some researchers simply conflate developmental readiness and proficiency, which of course doesn't have to be the case, okay? Because only because somebody has not reached a particular stage of development with, with respect to questions, I'm not really sure that you can equate this with proficiency because proficiency has a lot of different aspects, okay? That, that's my view, basically, on developmental readiness. Something that some reviewers didn't like, apparently, but, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes you have to try to approach certain constructs in a new way, okay? Only because we have had research for years which, you know, has treated uh, a certain construct as a holy grail. I, I think we are still allowed or should be allowed to have, like, like a novel perspective on this. Very, very well put. <laughs> um, do you think learners benefit from peer feedback? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Even though, again, we have to be very careful here because, uh, again, maybe some of my beliefs are based on the context or grounded in the context in which I work. And since I have done most of my teaching in Poland, I can see that students, even who represent a pretty high level, are always tempted to fall back on their L1. Okay? So, uh, in, you know, in Poland still, in the vast majority of cases, this might be changing, but I think that in the vast majority of cases, Teachers have like monolingual classrooms, even when they come from a different background, like Ukrainian, they can still understand and speak Polish, okay? So, so I think this is a, a serious limiting factor. So, so this is something that we have to look at, but definitely, definitely peer feedback has potential, but you would have to plan the tasks in a very meticulous way. You know, I, and again, if, you, if I look at my research, because a while back I did some research when I looked at the negotiation of meaning. So when there was a misunderstanding, what do learners do? And I also looked at negotiation of forms. So basically, this is correct feedback uh, to some extent. And uh, and I think that I looked at, I, I don't really remember the numbers, but I think I looked at like 40 tasks or 50 tasks, different types of communicative tasks. And I discovered like, you know, maybe 1.7, the uh, one just one or maybe two episodes per each task where, stu where students actually would correct each other. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are many different issues coming into play when you have negotiation of meaning. You know, it's easy to switch to Polish. Okay, when you have a real mistake or error, well, first the learner has to be able to recognize it, to see it. Second of all, the learner has to be willing to provide correction. And I mean, there are face issues coming into play in, here as well. So, and again. So, so I would say that peer feedback can, of course, be very useful, but you have to be very careful about the planning of the task and what students you put together in a group or a pair, okay? Because uh, I, I think these are critical issues. Because you have a tendency, you know, when you teach, you know, there is this natural tendency that students always or almost always work with each other in pairs and groups because it's convenient, okay? When you have like 45 minutes, a class of 45 minutes, you don't want to waste the time. 
But then, of course, this has ramifications for what is happening. And then if you want to divide students into pairs and groups using some criteria, this, take, this takes a lot of time. Okay, So again, uh, this, there, is always, there always has to be some give or take. So, so I would say that, yes, peer feedback definitely has the potential to be very useful, but we have to factor in a lot of different uh, issues. And it might be more useful or, or it might be particularly useful in the case of writing, so peer feedback pro provided on, on written work. But again, the question is, to what extent students are willing later to actually look at the comments that they provided by their peers, just like they're very often unlikely to look at the comments provided by their, by their teachers, okay? So it's always a matter of priority priorities for students. But, but on the whole, yes, it's something that we should try to encourage, but it will not happen just by itself. Right. So I would not really count on it that when you get students to talk to each other in English, first of all, they might not really talk in English part of the time. And second of all, they might not really be willing to uh, correct each other or maybe able to correct each other in some situations. And the student who is corrected might not be very, uh, might not be very trusting whether or not the correction is actually, uh, you know, accurate. Okay. So, so, I mean, there are a number of issues here that come into play, I guess. I'll jump in with my one question of the show here, because that makes me think, <laughs> how do you, maybe I'm wrong interpreting this, but then how do you recommend or how do you come away with something like peer feedback where research suggests that it's effective theoretically, but on the other hand, in a classroom setting, a standard classroom setting, like you're describing, it might not work the way that we as teachers would want to if we're applying the research. So the research says this is a very effective strategy, but the reality says it may not go the way that the research suggests that it should go. What do we read into that? Well, well I would say, you know, when you talk about research, you, have, you always have to understand that research is designed in a certain way. Uh, it is designed in, in such a way that certain things are more likely to happen than in real life, you know, because this is what you want, okay? So you come up with tasks which encourage corrective feedback, and you come up with conditions which encourage corrective feedback. But I would say that, um, I'm not really saying it's not effective, I'm just saying that it will not happen in and of itself, and I think you need to somehow engineer it uh, by designing the tasks in the right way. But also, something I would like to emphasize in particular, training students in, first of all, detecting corrective feedback, and then training students in providing corrective feedback. Because if we don't do it, I mean, and this can be done in many different ways, but if we don't do it, I mean, we cannot really expect students to recognize recast, teach them some strategies they can use to correct each other. I remember when I was working in high school a very long time ago, just right after my doctorate, and I did a study where I taught students some communication strategies, okay? And, and of course, and this was like, a, like an, an intervention study, but of course, some of them didn't really bother, but many of them made a conscious effort to use the phrases just to avoid the use of Polish. And it worked. So I'm just trying to say that we can train the students, uh, make them more aware, correct the feedback. And I think that this could, to some extent, do the trick. So I'm a big fan. I mean, some of the work I've been doing uh, has been devoted to grammar learning strategies. And then one aspect, I think, is the provision of corrective feedback. And I, I believe very strongly that you need to train students, to encourage students to, to look at what corrective feedback looks, looks like, to, to show them what it does, and then to also show them how they can correct their peers in a less maybe obtrusive, offensive manner, you know, because I think this is also a very important issue. Uh, and also peer feedback will probably be much more effective like in groups where, you know, there are not too many students 
rather than in like a whole class where everybody can hear like, you know, a student correcting a teacher, you know, sometimes because I think there is a basic misunderstanding when you, when you read some methodology course books, it might just be my opinion, but you know, sometimes we, we can read that peer feedback is better because it comes from other students. And most of the studies show very clearly that students want to be corrected by the teacher mostly. Okay. So I would, I would just say that getting feedback from the teacher is much more natural than getting feedback from your peers. Okay. So, so this is definitely something that we need to look into as well. I'm not sure if that if this answers your question, but no, it does absolutely <laughs> yeah. it does, and I think that's that's a very natural setting. But it, like you said earlier, there's not a one size fits all to anything. And while it might be natural f- to receive feedback from the teacher, no matter what you're taking, if it's a SLA class or if it's an economics class, <laughs> that's that's what the teacher's role is. But at the same time, we also want to make our learners independent. Sure, of course, yeah. I mean, definitely. That's why that's why I mentioned the, the training thing. Okay, yeah, definitely. So uh, one of your research interests is on uh, form-focused inspection and the impact of uh, corrective feedback on it. So uh, how is corrective feedback important in form-focused inspection when uh, compared to more of a planned learner performance approach? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Actually, the point I've been trying to make for a long time, and to me, it is just an option in form-focused instruction, corrective feedback. So let me just focus, if that's okay, on grammar teaching, because I think this is the area where I've done most of my research. I think that, you know, of course, there are different ways of introducing grammar, so I'm not going to debate it, like, you know, task-based or structural, whatever. You know, I have my own opinions, but this would, be a, this would have to be a different podcast, I guess, so I don't want to go into this right now. But I just wanted to say that, you know, students learn a particular structure, then they practice it, okay? If, it, if we follow the PPP, more or less. Uh, just more generally, I believe one thing I need to explain I believe very strongly that the way we have been viewing PPP is very restricted because I think that PPP cannot be viewed within a single class. I think that we need to look at PPP over a sequence of classes. And then the last P, like the production, should be communication-based tasks. Okay? So students can actually have the opportunity to convert or to develop, to automatize like the, the explicit knowledge they have. But to go back to my you know, to what I was saying, so introduce structures, and then of course students practice the structure. Uh, in some controlled exercises, and you need corrective feedback. And this corrective feedback, to my mind, would have to be direct. Very often, it might have to be immediate. Uh, it might offer the students an opportunity to self-correct. There might be space for peer correction here. But the students would need to know the answer immediately, whether they're right or, or, or wrong. Okay. And I also think that in this case, you would ignore pronunciation errors, other errors, which are not related to the main point, just not to confuse the learner. And then when students move on to you know, practicing the structure more communicatively, like in a communication task, like what Alice calls like a focused communication task. So the kind of task where you have to communicate, but the use of a particular grammatical feature is necessary or facilitative. And then you focus on just the feature, like passive voice. And you provide corrective feedback on just passive voice when students, you know, report like what they did or when you circulate, when you walk around the classroom and they do something in person groups. So this would be focused feedback. So here, here we have it. This would be focused on form. Okay? And now, depending on the learners, in some groups or in some situations, you would just stick to recast because that's okay. In others, you might encourage self-correction by means of prompt. And there might be a situation after the completion of the activity where you want to re-explain, maybe using the L1 or the problem. But then, uh, some, sometime afterwards, you have like a more open communicative activity, like a game, whatever. There is a revision. And then you can provide what we call unfocused feedback. So 
you know, address a range of errors which maybe get in the way of communication. Not not everything or not a single structure. And here I think there is uh, room for a very different type of thing. Okay, so depending on the learner, depending on the error, uh, you either ignore it or 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 you you are more explicit or implicit, or you ask for uh, you know uh, self correction, or maybe you ask another peer to chip in somehow and to help out. So I I just feel very strongly that you need to you know somehow integrate corrective feedback into the teaching process. So it's not something that is like a separate element. Okay, it's something that needs to be incorporated. But again, if you look at studies. And I don't think you can blame researchers, but most of the studies are very limited in the sense that they they just focus on like a string of like you know, four classes, five less classes, some segments, and and then you know you you draw conclusions on the basis of students' reactions to, to feedback. Uh, but then I think that you also need to look at the bigger picture. Okay, teachers in their teaching don't confine themselves to a specific instructional option. They use a uh, bunch of instructional options which they put together to achieve the most uh, the best the most beneficial learning outcomes okay so so i think that you need to look at feedback as part of that puzzle okay of of effective instruction and you just have to adjust it to the different stages of what you do so that, that that's the way i see it basically you talked about some of the challenges of like researchers and closing that gap between researchers and teachers do you think do you have any like advice to teachers on like how they can take what the researchers are doing to use that into their classrooms? Well, they would have to, well, I think the advice is they, they would have to have some point of reference, okay? Without this, I mean, uh, well, well, if I were to summarize what I have said so far here in this podcast, I would say that they have to adjust corrective feedback to what they want to achieve in a particular class, okay? And I think that you cannot overcorrect, but you also have to remember that uh, when you have like a class, like an English class, a French class, a Spanish class, this is the time when students want to learn something, okay? And I don't think that you can just ignore errors for the sake of believing that, you know, developing communication is everything you need, because we ha- we cannot forget that some learners at the end of the day will want to work for companies, okay, where they need to be accurate in what they do, because they will be responsible for contracts worth millions, for example, and they, and they translate or interpret. So I think that teachers have to be aware that, you know, they have a, a number of options they can choose from, and they should try to adjust uh, the options to a specific uh, to a specific class and the objectives they want to meet, okay? And, and again, I would encourage teachers to look at feedback as a very important tool that somehow uh, fits in with the entire process of instruction, okay? So not something separate. Okay? Definitely feedback should not be random, okay? So it, you should not just correct everything or you should not just pick up on something that is relevant. Like, you know, very often in teaching, we have this focus all of a sudden. If you think about pronunciation, for example, it has been, more, I mean, it's been marginalized, generally speaking, at lower educational levels because there is no time. And all of a sudden, the teacher focuses for some reason so much on the TH, you know, and, and then of all the errors the student makes, which might actually get in the way of communication, all of a sudden you have this focus on the TH and you know, the student is requested in front of the class to actually practice it and repeat it. So we just have to be aware of what we are doing, basically. And that, that, that's the thing. Uh, so greater awareness uh, would be would be would be something that that would definitely be welcome here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> You've been so helpful. I mean, 
<laughs> I, I know it's easier said than done. So, you know, when you yeah. actually teach, you realize that sometimes, you know, because even though I'm, you know, I mostly teach like content classes right now, from time to time, it is my conscious choice to teach like uh, what we call a practical English class in the, in the English department. So I teach conversation or writing. And, and then you face the challenges that teachers face because the levels, you believe it or not, but the levels have been dropping for many years, like here in Poland. So you might not believe it, but like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the levels of English majors, the level like was much higher in general than now for whatever reason. Uh, but but right now, you know, a lot of people, they they start studying English, believing that this is just an intensive English course. And 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 some of them, you know, so so it, it's a challenge even at this level. Okay, and and once and when you teach a class like this, you will realize once again how difficult it is to teach effectively. Okay, and sometimes whatever you do, uh, some students will simply not care. And you know, but you but you know, my feeling is that whatever we do in the classroom, we should be happy if it benefits even the few who want to benefit from it. Okay? And this is this is my approach to it. Uh, and um, and yeah. So, but teaching should be a passion in general. That's what I believe. But uh, as a university professor, I like to remind myself of the challenges of teaching by actually teaching English, not methodology or not, you know, second language acquisition theories. This is not real teaching of English, of course, right? But when you actually have to teach English, you come to realize that even at this level, students have different agendas. Students represent very different levels, okay? Students have very different problems, very different strengths and weaknesses, and it's not really easy. They have different expectations and beliefs, and it's very easy, not very easy to adjust everything to, to what they do, right? You teach a conversation class, and of course, naturally also focus on vocabulary, and they will tell you what, but we are supposed to be learning how to speak, not learning new vocabulary, even though obviously speaking effectively on a particular topic is not really possible without a certain range of vocabulary. So yeah, so yeah, so that's what I would say. Awareness always helps. And I think that one more point I would like to make uh, is that it's very difficult to be, to teach future teachers of English if you never taught in a real school yourself. Because very often you will hear from your students that what you're teaching, what you're teaching us has no connection whatsoever with what happens in school, which is true to some extent, okay? But again, they need to realize it's about options and it's about choices. Uh, that they will have to try to apply in their specific situations, okay? So, I mean, there are no recipes that will work everywhere. Thank you so much. I've learned so much just hearing your, just listening yeah, to thank your Thank you talk. so much. Hope, hopefully this has been useful, okay? So, very, thank, you. Very, thank you so much yeah. for having me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so thank much you. for your wonderful knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.